You're listening to Pair of Programmers. I'm Christopher Wolf, And I'm John Fisher. In the show, we explore different topics that software developers encounter in their careers. The format of the show is that one of us researches a topic, and the other reacts with insights from their experience. Tweet us at Podcast to send us topics you'd like to hear discussed. So machine learning, you know, is a pretty broad topic. Uh, there's a lot of different algorithms that fall under machine learning. Um, and sometimes it's hard to define machine learning against other similar concepts like artificial intelligence. Um, but the way that I've heard machine learning described, which may or may not be perfectly accurate, is one can think of machine learning as computational statistics. Um, and you have all these various algorithms to help you solve different problems, um, but that fundamentally you're using statistics in a computational sense to um, drive these algorithms. What do you think about that, John? Does that jive with what your understanding of machine learning is? Yeah, a little bit, especially for like the first few things that we'll talk about, like regression. Um, that's just like straight up algebra and, and maybe some statistics in there. Mm -hmm. um, so definitely fits with that. I, I think I couldn't find like this exact definition online anywhere, but I think I've, I was, I've been trying to separate out what the difference is between machine learning and um, artificial intelligence. Um, and like every blog post that I've read is like, they're different and here's why, but like, I couldn't really like boil that down into anything concrete. Mm -hmm. And I think to me, it seems like the difference really is that AI is more of like an abstract idea. And then machine learning is like one implementation of it. Um, gotcha. And that obviously has many different subsets. Um, the, the, the interesting part is like, out of all of those blog posts, I couldn't find any blog that actually listed another like implementation, quote unquote, of AI. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it seems like everything that I run across that's within AI is kind of a subset of machine learning in some way. Mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts on that? I think that makes sense. Like, so basically you're saying that AI is what humans use machine learning to accomplish? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think that's a good definition. And then um, there's also, so I think this is super fascinating. Um, there's um, artificial narrow intelligence and then artificial general intelligence. And narrow intelligence is um, like much easier and it's things that, that are goal oriented that can do like specific tasks. Mm -hmm. And artificial general intelligence is this very... Um, lofty goal that will be able to produce something that is very human-like, that doesn't, um, that just can like learn on its own, make decisions on its own. Uh, I think you start to get into like, when you're talking about general intelligence, you start to ask questions like, well, can it, you know, be creative? Um, can it, you know, feel emotions? Does it mm -hmm. have the capacity to love or like, should it be held accountable for the decisions that it's making and that sort of stuff. So yeah, what what do you think about that? Have you ever heard of um, AGI as it's called? Um, yeah, I've heard of artificial general intelligence. I um, mean, I think you characterized it really well that, that it's um, the goal is to try to make it, I wouldn't say human-like necessarily, but, you know, to behave like humans that we make our own decisions and can take input and take new types of input that we've never seen before and still learn from those experiences and um, create new outputs. Uh, sounds a little scary when we start talking about feelings and emotions and <laughs> how do we deal with, if, if that were to be the case, how do we deal with those ethical yeah, um, this is a this things. is a tech podcast, right? We don't think we don't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, cool. Yeah, definitely. That's a great summary of machine learning and AI. Um, do we want to talk about supervised and unsupervised learning next? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So I found this definition on Wikipedia that machine learning is the study of computer algorithms that improve automatically through experience. And then it broke it down into at least two and maybe three different categories, supervised learning, unsupervised, and reinforcement. Um, and supervised is basically the, the training data is um, labeled and you, you have like, you know, what the expected outcome should be. And mm -hmm. then you can um, train your algorithm to like, you know, keep, well, I mean, we'll talk about the implementation later on, but like keep those trained data sets in mind basically. Mm -hmm. And then what, so why don't you go, what's unsupervised learning to you? Yeah, sure. Sounds good. So if that's the definition of supervised learning, then I would think the definition of unsupervised learning is that no labels are given. So the algorithm needs to learn how to parse the data as it sees it and, um, you know, determine the best way to accomplish its goal from there. Uh, so does that so essentially there is no training data. Um, it's yeah. just kind of taking all the data wholesale and trying to learn as best it can from it. Um, yeah. But it's given a goal, like it's uh, like that's how it, it knows that it's doing a better job or a worse job by measuring its performance against its goal. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And then there's a third category and that's reinforcement learning. And I feel like reinforcement learning should maybe fall into one of these categories, um, probably unsupervised learning maybe. Um, but it's kind of the in-between where like as the algorithm is running, then the, the program is providing feedback, kind of like rewards um, as it goes along. Gotcha. So could you do that with in either use case, like maybe in supervised learning, like it had some training data, but augmented into its runtime is, you know, some sort of reward mechanism to yeah. still keep improving itself. Right, right. Yeah. Yep. Makes sense. Um, and so all three of those concepts, those different types of learnings, those transcends the different algorithms that we're about to get into, right? Like you could do potentially right. supervised learning in one algorithm, or there might be within that algorithm a way to do it with unsupervised learning as well. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Awesome. Well, uh, that is a good summary of the different types of learning, but there's a big world out there in terms of machine learning algorithms. And so we're going to touch on a few in this episode. Typically, the format of our show is that one of us does the research and the other reacts with their work experience. In this case, John and I have never used machine learning in practice at our jobs. And so in all fairness, we decided to break up the research for this episode to make it fair. And um, so we've each researched different machine learning algorithms and we'll go through them uh, one by one. Yeah, and I don't want to totally throw us under the bus here. Like both of us have some experience in practice using these like through academic courses. Um, that's definitely not the same as real world experience, but we're, we're not totally flying by the seat of our pants. Yes, right. Good point. Yeah, we do have uh, some insights um, from our, our academic programs. The different algorithms we're going to cover in this episode are decision trees, regression algorithms, instance-based algorithms, neural networks, and cluster analysis. And then at the end, we'll talk about how you might build on top of these algorithms in deep learning and ensembles. Sounds good. I'm, I'm interested. Tell me more. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> all right, so I've got the first algorithm here. Um, the algorithm is decision trees. Now, decision trees are a thing outside of machine learning. Um, and so if you don't know what a decision tree is, a decision tree is a flow chart-like structure. Uh, and so you'll have nodes and branches and eventually um, leaves are at the end of the tree. And so each node that isn't a leaf, uh, so these are the nodes at the top of the tree, represents a test on an attribute. So you could imagine like a coin flip was the coin, did the coin come up heads or did it come up tails? From those nodes, um, you branch off. And so each branch represents an outcome of that test. 
So you might have a branch that's like it came up heads or a branch that it came up tails. And then the leaf nodes represents uh, a label or an outcome. And so, uh, for instance, in the coin flip scenario, the leaf nodes would be heads or tails uh, because that's the outcome, the result of flipping the coin. Um, now, how you might use that in machine learning is uh, by implementing decision tree learning, where we use the decision tree to go from observations about um, an item to conclusions about the item's target value. Uh, so, for instance, some example applications might be predicting health outcomes. So you could imagine looking at a data set about diabetes, and maybe you know, um, maybe the data set includes um, you know, people's ages, people's known glucose level measurements, their age, their BMI, etc., and then some sort of label that indicates whether they have diabetes or whether they don't. So, and, Chris, Chris, that label um, is is one part of it, and then all of those different attributes that you talked about; those are typically called features. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Um, so, the features are the different factors that go into yeah. the outcome, and then the label is the eventual outcome. Mm -hmm. um, and so, the, in the diabetes example, age, glucose level, BMI, those are features of a person, and then the label the outcome is whether they do or do not have diabetes yeah I, you'll probably get into this but those labels are given like when you're going when you're training your your decision tree right yeah that's right um so uh like we mentioned earlier decision trees um usually you would do supervised learning and so you would give it uh some amount of training data and then you would train it on that data and it would learn from that data what the different outcomes might be, what the different factors might be that go into whether a person has diabetes. And then as you get, the reason why this is helpful is as you get new patients coming into your office, right, you can kind of plug in their information into the system and before performing any tests, you know, the machine learning algorithm can tell you a probability of whether or not that person has diabetes. Uh, so that's where it can be helpful. Uh, that's one example of many of where decision trees can be helpful. Um, now with decision trees, and honestly, with a lot of machine le learning algorithms, there's two different um, ways that you can use them. Uh, when the decision tree is being used to just determine like a category or a discrete label, that's called classification. So in the diabetes example, do they have diabetes or don't they like that is a classification. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can also use decision trees to perform regressions. Uh, and so that regressions, um, there you're trying to predict like a continuous value. Uh, and so typically those are, you know, real numbers because if they were integers, then that would be a classification that's a discrete number. Whereas uh, real numbers, you know, exist on a continuous spectrum. So when you're trying to use a decision tree to predict a real number like that, then that's called a regression tree. Mm -hmm. And that's all I have on decision trees. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm gonna go into ensembles, just kind of like uh, something that builds on decision trees. Do you remember doing Adaboost and things like that in class? Boosting sounds familiar. I don't remember ensemble or bagging. Uh, bagging sounds familiar. I don't remember ensemble though. Yeah, ensemble is just the term that it's like an umbrella term for both of those things. So there's nothing. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> um, the problem with decision trees is they have a lot of undesirable limitations. Um, the first one is that trees aren't very robust. Uh, so some small change in the training data can cause the tree to change really wildly. And that's not good for a model, right? Like a model shouldn't upend itself um, just because of one or two new data points. Um, in practice, decision tree learning algorithms uh, use heuristics such as the greedy algorithm, uh, which optimizes for local decisions instead of the bigger picture. And uh, what that means is such algorithms can't guarantee the most globally optimal decision tree. Uh, so basically, the models that it can produce 
Um, they're not robust and they're not even really that good. Um, and the final problem is that decision tree learners can create overly complex trees. And so, uh, you know, when you think of a decision tree, when you imagine it, you might think of this beautiful tree with really simple nodes and really simple decisions that go into those nodes. Um, but in practice, the decision trees that the computer generates can be pretty verbose. Um, they might split on decisions that are so minute that um, it creates for a really complex tree. And this is called, this is a decision tree's way that it overfits data by making decisions that are just so overly complex that um, it's trying to fit the data to. Now, there are mechanisms that try to avoid um, overfitting, such as pruning, which is where you might cut out branches of the tree that you know aren't good at predicting, um, So, or maybe branches of the tree that aren't traveled down very much in your training data. You might prune those branches out to simplify the tree. Um, but either way, all of these kind of add up to decision trees having uh, being an undesirable choice in machine learning, which is unfortunate because otherwise they're probably the most straightforward uh, algorithm for people to understand. So to overcome these limitations, um, you can use something called an ensemble method. And we'll go into two different ensemble methods in a minute, in a minute. but the idea is that you just use multiple trees instead of one, and that can actually significantly increase the value of the model, the ability for that model to be a better predictor. So the first ensemble method is called bagging. And so in bagging, what you do is you create multiple trees, and each tree receives some random sampling of your training data. So if you, um, I think usually you would do, what, 20%? If you have a big data set, I think you would reserve 20% of it for training and 80% for testing. Is that, does that right, sound right? I don't I Yeah, that, that, I think that jives with what I yeah. remember from before. Okay, yeah, I just don't have that written down, but I think that that is, is right. Um, and so in bagging, uh, for that 20% of the data, you might give trees each 50% of that 20% of the data. And so they're each kind of receiving different amount, different uh, perspectives of the data, and they're each fitting... Um, they're each behaving independent of each other. Uh, you fit them. You might, uh, if they overfit, you might prune them. They're all acting independently of each other. And then the idea of the bag is that when you're trying to predict um, something, you consult all of the trees. And so, the. <laughs> That sounds like some very wise wizard that's just like walking into the forest and having a chat with a bunch of old trees. <laughs> that's right. Um, now, how you consult the tree depends on what problem you're trying to solve. It uh, depends on what uh, type of problem you're trying to solve. If you're trying to solve a classification problem where you're just trying to predict a discrete value, then the consultation is the majority vote, which we kind of talked about with K nearest neighbor, where each tree makes a decision on that observation, and then the decision that has the most support in the trees becomes that new instance's classification. Uh, so just the majority or plurality vote is what gets used for classification. For regression, uh, again, similar to K nearest neighbor, we just take the mean value of uh, from all the predictions of the individual trees. Uh, so that is bagging. Now, something you can do on top of bagging is called random forest. And so in random forest, uh, it's not just that each tree gets a random sampling, random subset of the training data, but it also only gets a random subset of the different features. Uh, so we talked about features earlier when we were talking about the diabetes example. Um, the features, the total, set of features were something like age and BMI and glucose level and uh, etc. And so in random forest, one tree might only get age and BMI, while another tree might only get BMI and glucose level. And uh, it's been shown that 
despite giving it less information, that building an ensemble of trees in this way actually can produce a stronger predictor for the target output. Um, and the concept goes, I think, I'm probably going to butcher this explanation, but the idea is that if that predictor was so important, if, that, if a particular feature was so important, like glucose level is, uh, tends to be the thing that drives whether a person has diabetes or not, um, if that feature is so important, then by limiting the features amongst each tree, that gives an opportunity for the driving features to come forward in the forest. Uh, whereas if every tree got every feature, that might kind of dilute the feature that is actually the driver, uh, like glucose level when it comes to diabetes. Um, so that's random forest, and that is bagging. And the other ensemble method that you might use with decision trees is called boosting. And so in boosting, what we do is we take a ensemble of weak learners. Um, it's okay that they are not good at learning as long as they perform better than random guessing by using boosting. The final model uh, has been proven to converge to be a strong learner despite being made up of weak learners. Um, but so what does boosting mean? Boosting, um, uh, sorry, excuse me. Um, so what does boosting mean? Boosting is adaptive. Uh, and by adaptive, we mean that as new instances come in, we can tweak new weak learners. We can build um, new decision trees and we can get rid of poorly performing decision trees. We can tweak, uh, we can look at, oh, my brain is fried. Um, let me start over just with the adaptive part. So the nice thing about boosting is that it's adaptive. As new instances come in, uh, weak learners can be tweaked in favor of instances that were misclassified by previous classifiers. And so basically the idea is that um, despite the fact that we're using these poorly performing weak learners of decision trees, uh, which have those limitations that we talked about earlier, because we have an ensemble of them, we can cut out the ones that aren't performing well or that completely ignored a particular feature from um, the decision-making process, and we can create new instances. And even though those new instances are also weak, they will perform better than their prior counterparts. And uh, so that's the idea of boosting, is kind of like churning through the creation of new decision trees to include in your ensemble and make that, uh, that voting process stronger because we're discarding trees that voted poorly. <laughs> Um, cool. Uh, a typical boosting algorithm uh, used in the wild is called AdaBoost. Um, so you can Google AdaBoost and that will probably teach you more about boosting. And that's it. Cool. Uh, you mentioned regression and that's, that's first on my list of things to talk about. I think I just want to caution or say that um, I don't... You, if you're trying to learn about machine learning and you see regression, I think probably at first you'll be confused, like, what? This isn't machine learning. This isn't computer science. This isn't artificial intelligence. This is just straight up algebra. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, and I think it's really not much more complicated than that. The The basic idea... So one, one example of regression is linear regression, where you use that um, training data to form a line of best fit and that's, you'll see it in written, the equation written in various different forms, but it's basically the old middle school equation of y, is, y equals mx plus b, where um, m is the slope, um, b is the y-intercept, um, x is your variable that you're using to predict that's called the independent variable, I always confuse those, and, but then y is the value that you're trying to predict. It's typically done for quantitative values. If you're trying to do something like this, um, but you your data is not quantitative, 
that's where you you probably want to use a different approach um, like what Chris was talking about um, regression is for quantitative data but classification is for more of like qualitative data um, so so the basic idea is you um, take your data you split it into two sets um, the training set and the testing set and then you come up with this y is equal to mx plus plus b and form that line of best fit and then you um, in forming that line of best fit the goal is to reduce the residual the residual is the amount of data that's unexplained by the line of best fit sometimes that's called epsilon so you want to minimize that you come up with your best fit line um, and then you test out um, the uh, the data with the with the training set data that you that you haven't um, used to form the line of best fit. Um, so if something is uh, fits the training data set really well, um, but it mm -hmm. doesn't fit the testing set, that's said to be overfit. So that's honestly like that's pretty much it as far as linear regression goes. Um, you can you can do what's called multiple linear regression where you have multiple independent variables so um, this would be like mx1 plus mx2 uh, plus you know however many number of independent variables you have um, and then there's i didn't actually look into the details of this but you can use something called wald's test um, and that'll help you determine if an independent variable is helpful in explaining um, the the prediction value of y and nice. um, so that's linear regression multiple linear regression and then of course you can do any sort of regression um, where you have some y equals function of x um, equation so mm -hmm. this could be like sinusoidal um, could be um, like y is equal to you know, some higher order uh, function, like y is equal to 2x squared plus 3 or something. Mm -hmm. um, and then do so, you, yeah. like, um, so this, I guess, would be another thing that's kind of transcends all algorithms, but um, this might be easier to understand on linear regression since people are so familiar with it. Uh, so when you take the training data, um, you give it, you know, to the model and it comes up with some sort of prediction. Um, and then you grade it by giving it the testing data. Uh, yep. And so, like John was saying, like if it poorly performs in predicting the testing data, then the model was likely overfit on its training data. And yep. so you can have some sort of measure for how poor the model performs. And then the way often in various algorithms you iterate, so you keep trying different models or combinations until you find yeah. one that does do well on the test data. Um, right. And that becomes that becomes your actual model that you use in the wild and you see how it works in the wild too. Right, right. Yeah, so like a good example is if you know in the back of your head that the model that you're trying to, to predict is not linear um is is maybe some higher order function and you give it a linear regression your cost is going to be really high because it doesn't predict it well um, whereas another model might predict it much better so then obviously you would use that other model mm -hmm. um that's that's all i got for regression cool yeah with regression probably i guess you're trying to figure out like a mathematical formula in summary, like you're trying to figure out how you can describe whatever data set you're working with mathematically. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a good segue into the next algorithm uh, type, which is called instance-based algorithms. And in this type of algorithm, you're not trying to figure out some sort of formula. In uh, instance-based learning, instead of performing explicit generalization, you compare new problem instances with instances seen in training, uh, which have been stored in memory. And so it's called instance-based because it's just considering the training instances themselves. There's no like overarching hypothesis, like a mathematical formula that it's trying to solve for. 
Um, and so the nice thing about this is as you start throwing more and more data at it, you know, with with linear with a uh, regression learning, um, you might start off with data that looks like it's linear in nature, and so your model might, you know, converge on a solution like a linear regression. But as you start getting more data and it becomes less and less linear, your model can't um, comprehend that because it, you know, concluded that the data was linear in nature. So instance-based learning is great because the um, learning is all about the individual instances themselves. And so as new data comes in, it can kind of reshape its understanding of all of the instances um, as they come in. And as a result, one advantage that instance-based learning has over other methods is its ability to adapt its model to previously unseen data. Um, so there's a bunch of different instance-based learning algorithms. This, that's a type of learning, um, but a popular one is called k-nearest neighbor. So the k in k-nearest neighbor represents the number of surrounding neighbors that should be considered for classification or regression when considering a brand new data point. So for instance, uh, if a new data point comes in and you have um, your k nearest neighbor algorithm set to k equals three, then that new data point is gonna be compared to its three closest neighbors to decide on how that new data point should be classified in the mix of things. Hmm. So some example applications include determining the likelihood of someone not voting or someone uh, if they will vote, which party are they going to support in an election? Um, you could also use it for search recommendations. So the concept being like you have this object, you know, maybe the person's like reading an article and you're trying to find other articles that are similar. Well, you might use K nearest neighbor. You might have defined some sort of vector space that um, your articles and your CMS live on. And so you're trying to find articles nearby in that vector space um, right. to make a recommendation. So, yeah, I was, I was going to ask, when you say nearest, you mean, what what do you mean by nearest? And how do you compute distance? Yeah, good, good question. Um, so nearest would mean like, uh, I think that they typically do this in Euclidean space. So meaning like you have an X and Y axis, uh, but you could do it well, X, Y, or Z, you know, if you've got three, we talked about features earlier, if you've got three different features you think are predictive of mm -hmm. the classification. Um, so yeah, you would, um, every point in the data set, whether it's your training data or your, you know, uh, testing data or runtime data exists in this Euclidean space. And so the nearest neighbors are the ones whose Euclidean distance is the shortest. So, right. Um, so, like, you give the example of three, so it'd basically just be like, you know, the whatever that distance squared or the the difference between the distance in each dimension squared and then square rooted or whatever. Yep, that's right. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then it, you mentioned like three features, but and we'll get it more into this later. But a lot of times there are like sixteen features, and it's really hard to think about that in terms of like spatial dimensions, right? So a lot of times oh, yeah, people will just put this kind of stuff in like vector space and then just do it through matrices. Yeah, um, I would say, yeah, it's maybe while you're learning it, you learn about it in two dimensions and or right. three dimensions. But yeah, as you get a more complex data set, yeah, you would need to think about it in a different way. Yeah, like vectorization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Cool. Um, and like decision trees, k-nearest neighbor can be used for both classification and regression. Um, so classification is was that easier example to understand where if you have three neighbors, if two of those neighbors um, have one classification and the other has a different classification, you're going to be given, the new data point will be given the classification of the two, uh, of those two points because they basically uh, in classification all of the neighbors kind of take a vote of uh, mm -hmm. what class should this new data point be. And so mm -hmm. the plurality vote of the neighbors is what wins. So in the case of K equals three, two neighbors of a particular class are going to beat out the neighbor of a different class. Mm -hmm. um, but you can also use K nearest neighbor for regression. 
And so in regression, the value that you assign to the new instance is the average value of those k nearest neighbors. So if it was k equals 3, and each of the values was 1, 2, and 3, respectively, then the new instance would get a value of 2, because that's the average. So what do you mean of value? Can you give an example? Um, sure. So we were saying um, age versus income before. Uh, so if... Um, you know, if uh, the closest neighbors were 30, 31, and 32 in age, then the new data point instance would be given the age of 31, because that's the average age. And then because we're in two dimensions, if the salary was 49,000, 50,000, and 51,000, then that new instance would be given the value of 50,000. So that's the average. are you usually just trying to predict one feature or multiple features given one feature? I think you're just trying to predict one feature given multiple other features of similar yeah, okay. uh, of similar similarity. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, now the value that you pick for K depends you know, on the amount of data that you have. Um, so I guess um, this is something that's good to know is yeah, that a lot of these algorithms have parameters that go into them. So k nearest neighbor, k is a parameter that you, as the engineer, have to decide what value of k you're going to use. Um, mm -hmm. So you could, uh, k equals 3 is one example. You could turn that up, k equals 5, k equals 10. Um, the benefit of turning it up is that it's less sensitive to noise because you're getting more neighbors into the mix, and those neighbors are having their voices heard in their vote. Um, but you can imagine eventually as you increase K too much, your algorithm becomes kind of meaningless because K equals infinity means you're considering everybody, right? So like there's some diminishing returns by increasing K. There's some balancing act you have to decide between noise reduction and algorithm value, I guess. Mm. Uh, and so there are algorithms that help you pick the parameters for your algorithms, and that's called hyperparameter optimization. Um, but I didn't do any research into that. But if you're listening at home and you want to Google uh, hyperparameter optimization, you can pick up where I left off and learn all about those things. <laughs> um, and that's all I have for K nearest neighbor. Cool. Um, so we're going to give a real quick rundown of neural networks. This is not meant to be like an in-depth um, description of how these things work or how to implement it, um, but just a real quick overview. Um, so neural networks use something called perceptrons, um, or like neurons are kind of like the, the um, base element. And you'll hear neural nets called by a bunch of different names um, and abbreviations. One of them is ANN for artificial neural network, um, perceptron, um, or multi-layered perceptron. So the the basic idea is that um, you set up multiple layers of these neurons which take input. Input could be, I'll, I'll give as a real quick example, I'll just give the example that I read through online. Um, and that's, um, you have a bunch of, um, you have a handwritten number and you need to, um, and maybe it's like got some weird squiggle lines or it's like a seven with that weird crossbar. Um, and you need to predict based on the data that you, you've trained your neural network with um, which number this actually is. Um, and so the your first layer is called the input layer. In the example of with this handwritten number, that input layer consists of each pixel basically has a value associated with it. Um, if it's a grayscale number, it could be anywhere from zero to one if you want to like normalize it. Um, maybe it could even be like an RGB image. So then you kind of have, you know, three different kind of sub inputs there. Um, but for the input layer, each pixel there is a neuron. So that's the first layer. And then the, uh, the last layer is called the output layer which is basically, in this number example, a prediction of which number you think is most likely um, for that handwritten pixel image to actually be. Um, so if someone wrote a four, um, then your last layer 
is going to be the, the numbers 0 through 9. Of course, you could have 0 through 100 if that's your you know decision space or whatever. Um, but mm -hmm. 0 through 9, each, each node has what's called an activation. Um, and so that's basically the probability that that is the node that the neural network is like selecting. Um, so you want, if, if the actual handwritten image is a four, you want the nodes with values zero through three to be, to have an activation of zero, essentially. Um, you want four to have an activation of one mm -hmm. and you want nodes with values of five through nine to also have a activation of zero. Gotcha. And so between the first layer, between that input layer and the output layer are the hidden layers. And we're not going to get into how to implement those, but it's we talked a little bit before about taking votes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's basically those hidden layers are like taking votes on what it thinks should be the correct input. And then using something called back propagation to um, modify the weights. Um, those are like the strength of the edges between the different layers. Um, so you use backpropagation to modify the weights um, and also something called the bias, which is basically whether or not how quickly you want that particular neuron to fire. Um, so there's a lot of similarities between biological Mm -hmm. neural networks right in your brain basically um and the the computer science implementation of it mm -hmm. so that's that's the high level overview The actual actually implementing and it gets really into the details um and i think we'll probably cover that in a in a future lesson or not lesson sorry <laughs> future <laughs> what are these called future episode yeah yeah that sounds good <laughs> cool yeah um i think neural networks are like the most fascinating algorithm in machine learning um yeah just because like you said they're trying to like simulate the human brain and yeah you know you've got perceptrons that act like human neurons you know just yeah firing on raw input and eventually creating all these different layers so would you say the output layer is sort of like uh you know the decision yeah yeah that's right you're trying to figure it out the problem and actually come to a decision an outcome yep yep Thanks. and do you want me to jump into deep learning real quick um similarly do a, a real quick recap on that sure mm -hmm. okay cool so so using that basic neural network as like the fundamental piece of things um deep learning is kind of just what's called uh, what's been described to me as like a marketing term um, doesn't really mean much uh, but there are implementations within like the subset of deep learning um, that use neural networks as their fundamental component mm -hmm. and then just modify them and like build on top of it so the, the, there are two main ones um, the first one is convolutional neural networks or CNNs and the second one is recurrent neural networks or RNNs CNNs are really good at identifying pictures they use um, something called something called like a convolution matrix which can basically like pick out edges and shapes yeah so they're basically really good at identifying features within static images or you know whatever your input is it doesn't have to be images recurrent neural networks on the other hand are really good at identifying Oh, like predicting the future given past. So they're really useful when you're looking at time-based sequences. Um, they use what's called recurrent layer um, as part as one of those like hidden layers that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. um, so examples of this are it's used for speech recognition, handwriting recognition, and example from the IT world is anomaly detection um, in network traffic. So if you all of a sudden see a really high spike um, from some IP that um, you wouldn't think would be using your network, then you might want to flag that as suspicious. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so, and, okay, and so one kind of sub-implementation of recurrent neural networks is long short-term memory, or LSTM, um, is the most popular implementation of recurrent neural networks. 
Um, it's similar to just the vanilla artificial neural networks, but it solves an issue called the vanishing gradient um, by basically letting you either forget, um, ignore, or selecting um, certain nodes from like the previous um, time step sequence. And is that just uh, like a performance boost or does it actually improve the results too? Like letting the algorithm forget No, about... yeah, yeah. So it improves the results. The issue of this vanishing gradient um, is also, you can say either vanishing gradient or um, exploding gradient. Both of them are the same problems where basically you have neurons that get stuck on values either zero or one and then can't ever budge from there. Oh, okay. So introducing these forgetting and ignoring and selecting sections basically solve for that problem by saying like, oh, like we want you to, you know, be able to move around a little bit. And what's interesting is each of these like forgetting, ignoring and selecting components are artificial neural networks in themselves. Um, so this is again where you're kind of like building up from the base component uh, into like a higher order mm -hmm. um, thing. Nice. Well, I'm going to tell myself my issues with remembering things are just making me smarter. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's, that's it for the neural nets and deep learning. Nice. Awesome. Well, that brings us to our last um, big algorithm type, and that is called cluster analysis. Um, so in cluster analysis, what we're trying to do, uh, this often gets confused with the um, instance-based analysis um, because we're still dealing with a bunch of different instances. But in instance-based analysis, you're trying to predict one individual instance by looking at the neighbors. Whereas in cluster analysis, what you're trying to do is actually decide how are those instances separate from each other. So imagine a scatter plot. Uh, if we go back to our age and income example, you might imagine you might imagine that plot looks like a big cluster of points in the bottom left and a big cluster of points in the top right. So those are separate clusters to the eye, but how can we tell the computer um, mm -hmm. how to yeah. identify that those are indeed separate clusters? Uh, so that's what cluster analysis is, and that's how it's different from instance-based analysis. Uh, so in cluster analysis, we are looking for um, a group of objects and how are they um, considered to be in the same group, which is called a cluster, or how are they different from other groups? And there's a bunch of different uh, ways to define similarity in cluster analysis, um, but we'll go over four. Um, the first is called a connectivity model. And so basically each point knows how far it is away from every other point. And so based on the distance between any number of points, you determine the clusters from that. So like if one point is way away from another point, there's no way that they are part of the same cluster. Uh, there's centroid models. Uh, and we're going to talk about one particular centroid model called k-means clustering in a minute. Um, but there, each uh, cluster is represented by a single mean vector. And we'll define what that means in a minute. Uh, there's distribution models to define similarity where we just look at statistical distributions, um, such as Gaussian distributions and expectation maximization. Uh, and we use expectation maximization algorithms to define the clusters from there. And then the last one uh, of many uh, that you could learn about is called density models, where basically, um, again, kind of considering like Euclidean space, we look for high dense regions and low density regions, and the high density regions are where the clusters are. Um, so there's a bunch more. Check out the cluster analysis Wikipedia article to learn different ways to define the similarity of clusters, because that's an open-ended question. Even after you've decided how you're going to define similarity, you also have to decide whether you're going to implement hard clustering or soft clustering. So in hard clustering, each object um, either belongs to a cluster or it doesn't belong to a cluster. It's either in the group or it's out of the group. But with soft clustering, technically every object belongs to every cluster, but only to a certain degree. Uh, so you might say like a probability 
in some sense. Uh, you might identify three different clusters on the map, on the scatter plot, but each point has some amount of membership to that cluster, but those numbers will be higher um, the closer to a density of points. So that's hard and soft clustering. And then the final consideration for cluster analysis is how you define an object's membership to a cluster. And what I mean by that is you can have something called strict partitioning. And that means that every object has to belong to one cluster. Uh, and so even if you've got a point way off in the top right corner that doesn't really belong anywhere, he or she would still belong to a cluster. Um, so that's strict partitioning. Everything has to be a member of one group or another. Then a modification of that is strict partitioning clustering with outliers. And so that um, decision says it's okay for outliers to exist. We just aren't going to consider those to be part of any cluster. Um, you can implement overlapping clusters. So objects can belong to one or more clusters. And usually you would implement that if you have decided to do hard clustering. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of these sound like they're um, kind of subsets or like there's a lot of overlap between like the hard versus soft and these different yeah. clustering mechanisms. I think I think that's true. I think these are just like finer details. Um as you before you implement any algorithms that you have to decide on. Uh, and then the last one I'll talk about is called hierarchical clustering. And so in this case, you can have um, in your clustering algorithm, you can have parent clusters and child clusters. And so with hierarchical clustering, you're saying by definition that a child cluster and it's an object belonging to a child cluster must also belong to the parent cluster. Um, so that's hierarchical clustering. So those are just different, uh, considerations to a type of analysis called cluster analysis. Um, we talked about how there's different ways to define the similarity between objects. And we mentioned one option called centroiding. And so a particularly popular centroid based clustering analysis is called K means analysis. And so the K represents how many clusters we expect to be in the data set. So for instance, if we were still talking about the age and the income scatterplot. This is like uh, this is like K nearest neighbor of K nearest neighbor. Is that right? Yeah, they're definitely kind of related to each other. Um, I mean, the I think the um, maybe the math that goes into it is kind of similar as well, uh, but you're just trying to define different outcomes. Like uh, instance-based, you're trying mm -hmm. to define one instance among its neighbors. And here you're trying to define what are the neighbors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Um, so in K means clustering, the K represents the number of clusters. And so going back to our example of the age versus income scatterplot, if you were and this is totally hypothetical. If you were to see that there were a bunch of uh, points in the bottom left and a bunch of points in the top right, then those would be two clusters. So you might use k equals two to, to run an algorithm to define the boundaries of those clusters. Um, so the way that the algorithm works briefly is, uh, and this is called the naive k-means cluster analysis, and it's called naive because there are modifications that you can make to this algorithm to make it faster. But I'll just go over the simple algorithm. So first you start off by just assigning points to a random cluster assignment. And so uh, what you do now, um, I say random, but if for whatever reason you're working in a problem domain or in an application that you know a little bit better uh, on how to do an initial placement, you can certainly start off that way. It doesn't have to be random, but it also just can be random. So you can just randomly push points into different clusters. And then the following steps are repeatedly executed. Uh, the first step is the assignment step. And so each observation is assigned to the cluster with the nearest mean. And so in k-means, 
clustering, let's say we did k equals three. So we have three clusters that we're trying to find. Because of that first step, points are initially placed into a cluster. And so this gets getting back to that Euclidean space where you would find the mean of all the points in a cluster. So like it's mean x and it's mean y and potentially it's mean z. And then you would take each observation out of the entire data set and assign it to um, a cluster representing that nearest mean. So if the mean uh, age was 35 and the mean income was 50,000, then all the points who are closest to that mean, but not the mean of 90 and 100,000, they're going to be associated with that first cluster. From there, now that you've got these new assignments, your mean actually changes. And this is kind of the fundamental concept in k-means. The mean will shift mm. because it's gotten these new assignments, its new recruits into its cluster. And so it will recalculate the mean. And then you just keep doing that over and over again. So the algorithm is trying to search for um, however many k means you gave it. So let's say k equals 3. It has three means that it's searching for the most um, well-distributed clusters that are close to that mean. And so the mean will kind of travel, travel the Euclidean space trying to find convergence. So what does convergence mm -hmm. mean? Convergence is when every point consistently falls into the same cluster. So in early iterations, mm -hmm. especially if you started with a random initial placement, your mean is going to travel that space quickly. Um, but eventually, mm -hmm. it'll start to settle on around a particular mean, and the points will stop being reassigned between different clusters. And when you get to that point that everything is consistent, then the algorithm is said to have converged. And so then you have your fit, your fitted algorithm to use. You know, you might go into the testing phase, and if it performs well there, go into the production phase. Um, so just like with k-nearest neighbor, the k that you pick really matters. So in our trivial example, we used k equals 2. Um, but in a more complex example, we might do k equals 5, k equals 10. Again, it's just dependent on how much you're trying to avoid noise, but also trying to provide a valuable model. I think the other uh, limitation of k-means is that it's often inaccurate. <laughs> So if you go to the Wikipedia example, they have basically a data set that is reminiscent of Mickey Mouse's head. And <laughs> they have like a GIF of applying k nearest, uh, sorry, k-means analysis to it. And yeah, just basically it includes some of the head up in the ears. One of the limitations of k-means clustering is that it will ultimately try to balance the number of points in each cluster. And so something like Mickey Mouse, like the ears are smaller than the head. And so because k-means clustering kind of insists almost on having the same number of points, it's going to grab a couple of the points from the head to include with the ears as a cluster because it wants mm. to try to yeah. balance the number of points in each cluster, even though in that example, as a human being, you know that the ears are smaller than the head. Um, so that is one issue with k-means clustering. Um, so it is really sensitive to, as well, to the number of clusters that you pick. And you kind of have to know your data going into it. And so I guess what I'm saying is like, this would be another situation where you might iterate. You might try different values of k, and you might get some sort of grade for each of those models. And then you pick whichever one is the best one. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I like how all of these algorithms basically realize that there's kind of power in numbers like they're just like hey let's recruit many different opinions and and kind of draw draw decisions from yeah that. yeah definitely like i think yeah each algorithm kind of has its flavor of that like neural networks you know you can you've got these layers of perceptrons um and decision trees you can use ensembles and then k nearest neighbors like that's the whole idea is consulting your neighbors yes yeah definitely uh Humans could learn a lot from machine learning algorithms. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Cool. Um, I guess in conclusion, um, you know, we've talked 
briefly about um, a lot of different algorithms, but there's so many more out there. There's variations on each of these algorithms that you can learn. Um, there are also subfields of machine learning, such as computer vision, um, computational intelligence, natural language processing, um, etc. And there's different applications. Of course, we talked briefly about some healthcare applications. Um, John talked about, you know, handwriting recognition and speech recognition. You could use it in law enforcement, like the license plate readers, you know, they are absolutely using things like computer vision, which uses machine learning. So yeah, there's lots of different practical applications for this type of uh, analysis. Yep. Yep. Cool. Yep. Cool. Uh, we covered a yeah, lot. Yeah, that was a, that was a big episode. <laughs> um, do you have any final thoughts? I, I know we, we did cover a lot, but I think some of these need to be revisited and, and have a little bit more detail. So hopefully we can um, do that in a future episode. Yeah, definitely. All right, cool. Okay, yeah, that's it. All right, me. same here. Cool, thanks for listening, everybody. All right, cool, bye.